get ready to get choked up because today we're talking about the tragic and heroic pups of the Soviet space program. We've talked a lot in this podcast series about dogs' relationship to humans and how humans have molded dogs to suit their own needs, both physically in terms of selective breeding and also behaviorally in terms of training. The Soviet space dog program is, in a lot of ways, a really heartbreaking example of what dogs are willing to do for humans and what humans are willing to do for and to dogs. It's also part of a larger story in the 20th century about public perception and tolerance of animal cruelty. The space dog program was both a PR goldmine for the Soviets and a liability as well. This podcast takes us into the midst of the Cold War, when Soviet Russia and the U.S. were competing for supremacy, not just of this world, but of outer space. The Germans had developed the powerful V rockets during the latter days of the Second World War, capable of carrying warheads long distances and wreaking destruction from above, and that technology passed, along with the surrendering German scientists, mainly to the U.S. Werner von Braun is the most famous example of this. He became kind of the architect of the U.S. rocket program. Despite this advantage to the U.S., the Soviets were not going down without a fight, and they started developing their own rocket technology shortly after the war. There's a real tension in all this rocket research going on after World War II. On the one hand, the research was overwhelmingly targeted by the states involved toward developing faster, more powerful ways to kill your enemies. But on the other hand, there were always those scientists and visionaries for whom space was the goal, not weaponry. Sergei Korolev was the Soviet Union's Werner von Braun. He was a brilliant rocket engineer, and he had had, shall we say, a rough time during the Second World War. For most of it, he had been imprisoned in a working camp for scientists in Siberia, but he was exonerated and released in 1945 to work on the rocket program. In 1954, he started working on a project to create an artificial satellite, a Sputnik. Korolev and his team worked first to develop the R-1B and R-1V rockets, the Soviet equivalent of the German V-weapons, but they worked on modifying the nose cones to hold a payload that could be safely recovered, that could possibly contain living creatures. At the point they began working, though, they didn't know how things like radiation, weightlessness, acceleration, and just being in space would affect a living organism, or how to go about building a capsule or vehicle that could compensate for those factors. This was called human factors engineering, despite the fact that the first living creatures to experience it and test it out were going to be dogs. For this, he also needed a team with a background in the field of aviation medicine, which is exactly what Korolev got. The Moscow Institute of Aviation Medicine, which reopened in 1947 after being shut down during the war, supplied physicians like Vladimir Yazdovsky and Oleg Gazenko, who would work closely with both the rocket engineers and the animal subjects of these tests. So, before we go any further, why dogs? If you're going to send a creature into the upper atmosphere or space to determine whether it was going to be safe for humans, why send a dog? The U.S., in fact, concluded that monkeys were the better choice. They sent up rhesus monkeys and squirrel monkeys, and later chimpanzees. Well, biologically, they are indeed much closer to humans than dogs are, but they had other drawbacks. They're extremely excitable and unpredictable, and in a lot of ways, they're more difficult to train than dogs. Also, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, dogs' personalities and emotional reactions to things are actually a lot closer to humans. Although, like humans, dogs' personalities are not what they call linear, meaning not all dogs will react the same way to the same stimuli, neither are humans. The process by which the space dogs were ultimately selected, including temperament screening and detailed psychological observations, bore striking resemblance to later screening for human cosmonauts. Further, 
Russian scientists had a long history of experimenting on dogs, the most famous of which were the experiments of Ivan Pavlov, whose theory of classical conditioning depended on the work he had undertaken with dogs. But some of the advice that these Russian scientists got on training the dogs for the space program seems to have been a little less exalted than from a scientific giant like Pavlov. Instead, they went to the circus. The Durov Animal Theater has been in Moscow almost continuously since 1912 and has a storied history. It's still there today. Oleg Gazenko also brought on the animal psychologist Maria Alexandrovna Gertz, who had studied and applied the Durov training methods. Vladimir Durov had actually consulted with the army during the First World War as well on the possibility of interspecies communication and animal training. This is like telepathy. And worked closely with the psychologist Vladimir Bekterev, a contemporary and rival of Pavlov's. Durov's circus, incidentally, is where Gazenko was convinced by a monkey trainer that monkeys might not be a good choice for those rockets. The Durov Circus was founded by the brothers Vladimir and Anatoly Durov in 1912. They're pretty fascinating themselves, though it's kind of hard to find information about them in English. I can recommend the article by Anne Clamola in my uh, further reading section. They were members of an aristocratic family who literally ran away to join the circus. While, of course, they had an eye to making money and to entertaining, because they were both clowns, uh, Vladimir in particular was also respected as an animal behaviorist in his own right. And his theory of animal behavior was based on a simple precept, train without pain. In one of his books, he tells a story about how, as a cadet, he was asked to kill a dog by his fellow cadets. So he took the dog out to a shed to hang it, but he couldn't go through with it after he looked in the dog's eyes and saw, you know, not just fear, but sadness. As he says, from that moment, I understood that animals, just like humans, love, suffer, are happy, and enjoy life. I understood that they have the same right to life as we have. A short digression on animal training here. At the time Durov was developing his own technique, animal training in circuses and in other applications tended to be mechanical, as it's called. This means that pain avoidance was the major concept behind it. So you had horses in the circus being trained to dance by, for example, having their legs whipped, or elephants uh, being led with hooks that pierced their ears. This seems, and you know, in fact is, pretty inhumane. But it's worth mentioning, actually, that the U.S.'s training of monkeys and chimps for space employed this type of mechanical training in the form of shocks to the soles of their feet as late as the 1960s. For Durov, though, training began not with any physical intervention, but with observation. The trainer should take into account both nature, so the species or, or for dogs, any breed-specific traits like herding or hunting and so forth, as well as nurture, how the animal specifically had been brought up, its uh, contact and experiences with humans, for example. From here, on the basis of a firm understanding of the animal's personality and habits, the trainer could employ incentive-based training for the best results. Reading his book is actually kind of an eerie experience because it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. His training methods are pretty much exactly what you see on shows like The Dog Whisperer or any puppy training class you might find yourself in. He was, for example, a proponent of marker or clicker training, whereby the trainer links a reward to a sound, Pavlov, anyone? And subsequent clicks produce a desired behavior. The Durovs prided themselves on never using hooks or whips or any other kind of uh, pain-causing device, and their animals did some pretty amazing things. They had an actual working all-animal railroad, for example, operated entirely by various animals like dogs, cats, pigs, and geese. He also wrote about training animals to overcome fear by exposure, this would have definite implications for the rocket dogs. By incremental exposure, or flooding, animals could be made to get used to pretty much anything. He had a famous act in 1914 called the Peace Conference that involved prey and predator animals sitting together around a table, eating together. 
So, while training for space dogs was certainly not always fun, and often caused a good deal of distress to the dogs, the Soviet scientists did, in fact, take a page out of Durov's book by placing a great deal of importance on the psychological observation and preparation of the dogs. So, a little on the typical space dog. The dogs selected for the program were strays from the Moscow Pound, so right off the bat, you know, they had to be pretty scrappy. They were small, no more than 13 to 15 pounds, generally with light-colored fur, so that they could be filmed and photographed under dimly lit conditions. They ranged in age from 18 months to two years, so young, healthy dogs. Wound up being a girls-only endeavor, as the male dogs had a hard time functioning in the sanitary suit that had to be designed for the long space flight. No leg lifting in space. And finally, they had to be extremely trainable and willing to please. As I mentioned before, dogs' personalities, like humans, are non-linear. Two dogs, or two humans for that matter, might have very different emotional or stress reactions to the same stimuli. So to control for this, the dogs were carefully observed for months in advance of their training, just as Durov had suggested, and a complete psychological profile of each dog was compiled. Further, three dogs were used in every rocket experiment done. The telemetry coming from the two dogs in the capsule could be compared, and there was also always a third dog on the ground hooked to the same apparatus to control for any incidentals, and also to be sure that the equipment was, you know, functioning properly. Further, the scientists sorted the dogs by temperament into three categories. Restless dogs, lazy dogs, and calm dogs, who were neither restless nor lazy. The satellite dogs, including Laika, Belka, and Strelka, came from the calm dog category. So, what was life like for a rocket dog? On balance, when they weren't being shot into the upper atmosphere or in training, it was pretty nice. They lived in a kennel with other dogs, in individual wood-floored cages lined with straw or sawdust to snuggle down in. They were fed a sort of soup of animal fat and bone, with bread, meat, veggies, fish oil, or milk. And when they were in training, they could look forward to the really, really choice treats, like sausage, bouillon cubes, or even sweets. Before outer space, though, a number of dogs rode the rockets in suborbital flights. In 1951, on July 22nd, two dogs named Sagan and Desik became the first to make a suborbital flight from the barren launch site of Kapustin Yar, Kazakhstan, in a 9.8 cubic foot capsule. Before they were put in, Vladimir Yazdovsky, the physician, told them, return with victory, something often said to Russian soldiers going off to battle. They went up 62 miles and experienced four minutes of weightlessness before their capsule was parachuted to safety. When the capsule was opened, they reportedly were super happy to be back on the ground and did, you know, the happy dog dance that dogs do. Desik actually flew again on July 29th, but this time she died when the parachute failed to deploy. After this, Tsigan at least got a happy ending. She was adopted by a member of the team. No more flying for her. And it was lucky, too, because of the nine dogs that flew on suborbital flights in 1951, four of them died. If the flying was harrowing, the training was possibly even more so. Dogs were acclimated to being confined in capsules, like the one they would fly in, which got progressively smaller and smaller, and in which they would be confined for longer and longer periods, up to several days in the capsule. They were placed in pressure chambers, in which the composition of the air they were breathing was changed. More oxygen, less oxygen, more carbon dioxide, and so forth, to accustom them to the conditions inside the capsule over the course of a flight. There was the vibration table, to which they would be strapped while various loud or strange noises went off around them. They were also subjected to being whirled around in a centrifuge to simulate G-forces well in excess of anything they would experience in flight, 10 Gs in training, as opposed to maybe 5 Gs in a real flight. The opposite of this, no gravity, was simulated by parabolic airplane flights. That's free falls. They also had to be accustomed to their sanitary gear, which fit around their butts to catch urine and feces. 
The dogs, in fact, really preferred to hold it. But this actually seems like it may have been the hardest thing to accustom them to. And again, this is why pretty much all of the space dogs were female. Amy Nelson has very perceptively pointed out that the way Soviet literature talks about dogs after the Second World War is very telling. The phenomenon of keeping pets didn't necessarily seem very socialist. The whole idea of a pet is it's a creature that's there and it doesn't really have to do anything for its keep. It's a bourgeois idea. But in Soviet literature, dogs are servants of humanity. They were workers on farms, herding livestock, things like that. They were soldiers. They were military dogs, guard dogs, bomb sniffers. Just like the Soviet people, they served the state. And the experimental space dogs were really just that. They were not only workers, but living sacrifices to the scientific ascendancy of the USSR. In fact, pet ownership was actually on the increase during the 50s and 60s in the USSR, perhaps due in part to the space dog program. Nelson points out, again, that all the training and the dog care literature that came out in the USSR after the 50s always refers to the space dogs. Nelson has also suggested that in a lot of ways, the dogs stood in for humans in the space race. Now, the USSR, particularly the scientific community, was notoriously secretive during the Cold War. For example, Sergei Korolev, the architect of the rocket program, was actually never identified by name in the news. He was always the chief designer. But the dogs allowed people to put names to, you know, adorable, fluffy faces. As such, the dogs were given names, they were anthropomorphized, the scientists could talk about their different personalities, their likes and dislikes, and it wasn't bourgeois at all. These dogs were faithful servants of the USSR, risking their lives to assure Soviet superiority in space. So, back to our story. July 1st, 1957 to December 31st, 1958 was designated the International Geophysical Year. So this was basically a huge international project to collect data on a variety of phenomena like cosmic rays, gravity, oceanography, meteorology, just to name a few. The U.S. and the USSR, who were both participating of course, had to try to outdo each other, and so the U.S. boldly announced that they were going to launch a satellite to coincide with that year. The Russians, of course, wanted to be first. So, feverish work began on designing a satellite that could be mounted on a rocket and launched into outer space. On October 4th, 1957, Sputnik 1 was the result of this feverish work, and it launched from Baikonur again in Kazakhstan. After the success of Sputnik, Premier Khrushchev asked Sergei Korolev whether they could launch another satellite next month in time for the anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Korolev said, not only a satellite, but a satellite with a dog in it. So after this, Korolev, you know, hurriedly called his team back from their hard-earned vacation. They'd all gone to Sochi. And they all set to work making Sputnik 2. Because of the tight time frame, corners were being cut all over the place. And one major corner was the recovery system in the nose cone. There wasn't going to be one. The logistics of how to reinforce a capsule enough to allow it to re-enter the atmosphere were too much on the short time frame, so the dog that was going to be sent up would not be returning. Measuring 25 inches in diameter, 31 and a half inches long, the capsule would feature a single serving of the gelatinized dog food that would last its passenger seven days. After which point, hmm... The public first met the dog that would be known as Laika on October 27, 1957. She was introduced as Kudryavka, meaning little curly, maybe a reference to her spitz-like tail, and she did an interview with Radio Moscow, literally barking into the microphone. She was a two-year-old stray from the Moscow Pound and weighed in at 13 pounds. The interview assured the public that she was ready and excited to undertake her mission for which she had been carefully trained. Just as a side note, um, because there was some confusion about what she was called uh, in the days following the launch, 
The word Laika itself actually refers to a husky spitz mixed breed common in Russia to this day. It also means barker, because uh, literally, because Lai is Russian for bark. While now she's known to history as Laika, she had a number of other names. Uh, Kudryavka, as she was introduced on Radio Moscow, Zhushka, or Little Bug, Limonchik, Little Lemon. So this is actually really common. These dogs often had multiple names. They'd be called one thing by their handlers in the labs, and something else when they actually made their flights, usually something more impressive. Oleg Gazenko's own dog, Julka, who he adopted from the lab and who lived out her life with him, for example. Uh, Julka means mutt, but when she was a rocket dog, she flew under the name Jemshutsnaya, or Pearly. I don't know if Pearly is more impressive than mutt, but whatever. The screening for this satellite dog project was even more intense than for the previous suborbital flights. Candidates were trained first to spend two to three days in almost total darkness in progressively smaller and smaller capsules. Next, they spent up to 20 days in confinement suits, unable to move more than a few inches in any direction while being subjected to changes in pressure, gas composition, and temperature. In addition to Laika, there was Albina, her backup dog, and Muka, the control dog. Albina was actually the most experienced of the three dogs. She'd been on suborbital flights before. But Albina had just had pups, and she was also kind of the favorite around the lab, so she got off the hook that way. All the same, Albina and Laika both actually had their carotid arteries surgically rerouted to the outsides of their necks to facilitate blood pressure readings and had small electrodes implanted in their chest to monitor heart activity. Finally, on a particularly heartbreaking note, before the launch, Yazdovsky took Laika home to play with his kids. He said, I wanted to do something nice for the dog. She had so little time left to live. On October 31st, Laika's final flight preparations began. She had her usual 10 a.m. walkies, a bath and grooming, and by noon she was gussied up in her sanitation suit and restraining vest. She was placed in the capsule at 2 p.m., and she would remain there for three days until launch, while the equipment was carefully checked and rechecked. On November 3rd, 1957, less than a month after the launch of the first Sputnik satellite, Laika and Sputnik 2 were launched from Baikonur atop an R-7 rocket. Laika had enough food and water stored in an automated feeding system and a climate control system designed to last for seven days. The climate control consisted of an oxygen generator and a carbon dioxide-absorbing device. Her vital signs would be transmitted via radio telemetry, the first time that radio telemetry would send back this kind of information from space. Sputnik 1 was a relatively simple satellite and weighed 220 pounds. Laika's satellite, by contrast, weighed 1120 so, Laika survived the launch, although her heart rate and her other vital signs nearly tripled during the period of acceleration, and they took much longer to return to normal than they had in training. However, they did return to normal despite her prolonged weightlessness. She did make it into orbit, but soon after, the heat in the capsule began to rise. Traveling five miles per second, an orbit of the Earth took 103 minutes. She lived for six hours after launch before succumbing to heat exhaustion. However, the definitive truth about Laika didn't come out until 2002. The Soviets kept a tight leash, har-har, on the information. As the Soviets were well aware, part of what made the Sputnik so powerful was not just the considerable technology they represented, it was that there was an easy means for people to find out about them because of the media. As they had seen from Sputnik 1, the public, both in the USSR and abroad, were fascinated by space. And predictably, from radio to TV to print journalism, the mass media fixated on Laika. In this case, not only was there a satellite, there was a cute fluffy dog up in there, Western media, perhaps predictably, referred to Laika as Mutnik, and the Soviets asked them to stop. The day after the launch, the New York Times was reporting that it was perhaps possible that the dog might be safely recovered. 
In London, the National Canine Defense League actually picketed the Soviet embassy, and in New York, pet owners and their dogs picketed the UN. Despite public outrage in the West over the danger to this dog, the scientific implications were impressive, and the Soviets intended to milk them as long as they could. For as long as eight days after launch, the Soviets were still claiming they were receiving data, even though, remember, Laika died about six hours into the flight. When her death was finally announced, they claimed it had been caused by the expected oxygen depletion and that it had been painless. Sputnik 2, with the body of Laika inside it, orbited for another five months, finally crashing to Earth in April of the next year in a ball of flames. There were commemorations of Laika almost immediately. A memorial went up in Paris in front of the Society for the Protection of Dogs in 1958. That year also marked the year of the dog in the Chinese Zodiac, and she became the official mascot. A variety of memorabilia and kitsch followed from all over the world. Postage stamps, postcards, toys. Um, Olesia Turkina's book in the further reading section is chock full of fun images of space dog memorabilia. Also in 1958, the Soviet state even came out with their first filtered cigarette. I liked that when I read this, I was like, first filtered cigarette means they had other cigarettes before, so good for them. And they named it Laika, with a cute little picture of her on the box. Despite the mixed public opinion, Laika would not be the last dog in space by a long shot. On August 19, 1960, the dogs Belka and Strelka were shot up into space and orbited the planet 17 times, spending a total of 22 hours up there. They were returned safely, along with a host of other creatures sent up with them. A rabbit, rats, mice, flies, and plants. This one was known in the West as Sputnik 5. This time, the scientists actually had a video feed of what the dogs were doing, and apparently they were not happy campers. They freaked out initially, barking and trying to tear themselves free of the restraints. But after a few orbits and some vomiting, they settled down. They became an instant media sensation on their return because, you know, here are two cute fluffy dogs wearing tiny space vests, barking and dancing around for the cameras. I mean, it seems like two things that don't go together, but the Soviets really got the cute factor. Indeed, in all the press conferences, it was emphasized that these were just normal dogs who liked walkies and treats and loved to play when they weren't busy sacrificing themselves for the USSR. In early 1961, further, Strelka became the proud mother of six healthy pups. While this kind of seems silly to even mention, uh, not to mention that it became a huge news story, it's really not. Strelka's successful pregnancy showed that there were no catastrophic physiological effects on the reproductive system associated with being in space. This was major, major news in January 1961. By comparison, JFK's inauguration, also in January 1961, got little to no airtime in the USSR. One of those pups, Pushinka, or Fluffy, was presented to the Kennedys by Khrushchev. But, of course, not before being assiduously examined by the Secret Service for bugs or bombs. No word on whether she had fleas. But she became a beloved member of the family and mate of the Kennedys' Welsh Terrier, Charlie. Finally, in April 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space, well ahead of the Americans. Amy Nelson points out that, like the dogs, Gagarin's name wasn't announced until the day he flew, and like the dogs, he wasn't actually controlling the capsule he was in. It was controlled remotely. Gagarin himself was reported to have said, I don't know whether I'm the first man in space or the last dog. Gagarin was, in the event, not the last dog in space. In February 1966, the space dogs Veterok and Ugolek spent 22 days aboard the Cosmos 110, providing crucial information about the effects of radiation, orbiting through the Van Allen radiation belts. They were given uh, radiation meds before they left. These two were also returned safely, but unlike their predecessors, they didn't do the happy dog dance thing on return to Earth. They were too exhausted. They'd lost about 30% of their body weight. And this information would prove very useful to future cosmonauts on lengthier missions. 
Over the 10 years the space dog program was active, nearly 50 dogs flew, and 18 of those dogs lost their lives. There have been a number of efforts since then to remember the dogs and their contribution to space exploration. In 2005, NASA named a target site on the Vostok crater on Mars, Laika, right next to another one named Yuri Gagarin. Laika really captured people's imaginations, and it wasn't really because of the scientific advancements or the data her trip helped bring back. As Oleg Gazenko said in 1998, the more time passes, the more I'm sorry about it. We didn't learn enough from the mission to justify the death of a dog. Again, there's just something about dogs that draws humans in. The same sense of recognition and sameness that allows them to communicate and helps them feel empathy. To close out this podcast and this series, there are two monuments featuring Laika in Moscow, which I think between the two of them really nicely illustrate what we can sum up about the legacy of Laika. The first one is in Star City, where the cosmonauts get trained. It's a monument to the conquerors of space. This one is huge, 360 feet tall, shaped like a launching rocket with its contrail. Soviets, as you've seen, are big on anniversaries, so this one opened on October 4th, 1964, seven years to the day after the launch of Sputnik 1. You have to look hard to see Laika here. In the freeze that runs along the base, she's tucked away in her capsule, sitting up, you'll notice, not strapped in the way she really was, watching the goings-on around her as the engineers and scientists around her help prepare the way. But the focus of that monument is really on the figure of the cosmonaut, ahead of Laika and ascending to the stars. The other monument is small, it's right outside the research facility where she and her fellow space dogs were trained. This one was dedicated on April 11, 2008, for Cosmonauts Day. This one shows her standing on a rocket that morphs into a human hand, in the palm of which she stands. The symbolism is clear. The rocket took her up, but the humans put her there. That trust and that relationship made her historic journey possible. I'll let Vladimir Durov, the dog trainer, have the last word. I want man to stop seeing animals as some kind of walking machines that he may exploit as he wishes, and regarding which he has no moral obligation. Let him feel the personality of the animals, conscious, thinking, rejoicing, suffering. Understanding and respecting the mind of the animal, he will better understand and respect the mind of a human, and from this understanding, a better life will be possible. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.